This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63, the day that will live on in infamy. President Kennedy was riding high, a good day to be living and a good day to die. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about Murder Most Foul from 2020's Rough and Rowdy Ways is fellow Bobcat and author of the new book, Jack Ruby, The Many Faces of Oswald's Assassin, Danny Fingeroth. Hi, Danny. Welcome back. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me back. It's uh, nice to be here. Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed your uh, talk at the Dylan conference uh, in June. Uh, that I saw one. I saw the one on you did on um, Dylan and comics, which of course oh. is you know Venn diagram of two of my interests. So that was that was fantastic. Said I have been thoroughly, uh, as I said to you just off air, I've been thoroughly enjoying your book. I mean, it it's it's such a heady subject that uh, I don't know if. You know, like I said, if enjoyed is like exactly the word. I'm learning a lot. Thanks. Well, let's say an engrossing read, I hope. You know, maybe there you I'll... go. Engrossing. It's a better, <laughs> that's a better now word. Now I have a quote. How did you get started on this? I mean, wh- how did you come to write a book about Jack Ruby? Well, there is a comic book connection, actually, but, you know, I may, I may as well, you know, since that is the Venn diagram, uh, one of the Venn diagrams we share, I have found in the song at least one comic book uh, connection, which is uh, Mr. Mystery. Which is, um, Dylan uh, mentions Mr. Mystery in one of the litany of, of cultural, uh, references. Mr. Mystery was a 1950s pre-code horror comic that was mostly done by Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito, but other people, Jack Abel and a bunch of other people. So that, that. Wow. Even I did not, never heard of that one. Holy jeez. So, so I would imagine that was a comic that uh, maybe young Bob Dylan read because it came out in the early 50s. So uh, this, this actually did this project so that I'm telling you, I've been, as, as I did with when we did that other show, uh, what was about six months ago, eight months ago with um, mm-hmm. about Highway 61. I treated, right. I treated it kind of like a, uh, a doctoral thesis. You know, I never, I never went to graduate school, but uh, this uh, do- doing shows with you is kind of like uh, <laughs> like my graduate school. <laughs> it started out about um, ten or eleven years ago. I was ten years old when Kennedy was assassinated, which, weirdly enough, you know, was also the peak of the first wave of Marvel comics uh, fandom and and just what. Stan and Jack and Steve and Larry were doing is, you know, it was, it was those first couple. So, I mean, it's a very odd coincidence in, you know, just in my and, uh, other, dare I say, baby boomer, uh, people's consciousness. So I, I always thought it was too big for me to deal with. You know, I, you know, I knew that there were issues with the Warren Commission report to say the least. I knew that, you know, but it just, don't forget when something happens when you're 10 years old. And then again, you know, they, and then there were all those other assassinations during my childhood and my adolescence. You just go, well, I guess that's what happens in life. People get bumped off or 
you know, famous people and famous politicians, especially, although, of course, then John Lennon. Anyway, we get, I'm digressing already. So I thought it was part of the background noise of my life, but I wouldn't consider myself somebody who was especially obsessed uh, with the assassinations, except, of course, that it was this momentous event in the life of everybody in the United States uh, and every, you know, and many people around the world, but certainly in America. So, um, goes in my career and the comics and, and obviously, and, uh, about 11, 12 years ago, I said, you know, I was looking for a project to do, you know, sort of, I, um, I was freelancing and as a writer and editor and, you know, historian, whatever, I don't, I don't even, and, uh, and I said, gee, I'm, graphic novel about the Kennedy assassination with the 50th anniversary coming up. Hmm. Interesting. And then I started, okay, so let's, you know, it doesn't seem to be anybody else has announced anything. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe I come up with a good enough idea. I can, I can do a graphic novel, some angle. Okay. What's the Danny Fingeroth angle on the Kennedy assassination? And I start reading and researching. I go, Oh yeah, Jack Ruby. I mean, that, that came to me pretty quickly that my angle was much like my interest in like the founders of the comics business and Will Eisner and Stan Lee and Siegel and Schuster and Bob Kane and Bill Finger. People who could have been my aunts and uncles or, you know, from the same generation of firstborn American children of Eastern European Jewish immigrants, people who came in the early part of the 20th century uh, uh, fleeing from pogroms uh, uh, and persecution in general, in Eastern Europe. So that's, you know, that's sort of the prism. And I go, Oh, Jack Ruby, he's out of that same back, you know, kind of background. He was, he was born here. He was, he, you know, and it's also a greatest generation story, right? The same. So it's that generation, that era, you know, of, of, uh, you know, men, World War II veterans. And so I just thought, all right, well, this is, this is my entry point into telling a story about the Kennedy assassination and, Again, I did research and um, turned out that I uh, had an indirect connection to somebody who was very close to Ruby. So specifically, wow! <laughs> well, specifically, it was his it was his rabbi, a guy named Hillel Silverman, who is uh, who uh, people might know as the father of the actor Jonathan Silverman of Weekend at Bernie's. So that was <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a random data point that is. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's interesting because after Dallas, he went to, uh, he went, he moved to a congregation in Los Angeles. So I imagine that's where the show and my joke about him used to be that he was, you know, Buddy Hackett's rabbi, but it turned out he really was Buddy Hackett's rabbi, you know? So <laughs> anyway, so, so I thought, okay, so I write up at, at around the same time I, um, Known a guy named Howard Zimmerman, who some you know people may know as the editor, longtime editor of Starlog, and then he was worked for many years for Byron Price. I met him when I, when he and I both worked for Byron in the nineties, and he was working. He had a, a business as a packager, and I forget the exact sequence, but essentially, he liked the idea, and he put me together with Rick Geary, the uh, artist, uh, so underground and National Lampoon artist, mm-hmm. that does sure. a lot of true murder stuff. And Rick loved the idea, and I wrote like a 180-page script, and you know, I did like three or four drafts because Howard was not Howard was not just the uh, packager; he was also the de facto editor. And uh, one thing I had was the rabbi's notes. The rabbi interviewed the rabbi, 
he was still he only died about six months ago at age ninety nine. Wow. And, and um and he was and he was he had all his marbles till the end and and um and a good memory. And uh he 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 said to me, Would you like to see my notes and when I visited Jack in prison every, oh my God. every other oh my day God. every other day for four months. I said, Yeah, I wouldn't mind, you know. <laughs> oh my lord. So wow. I, had, I had those as a source. And anyway, so Rick and I put together this proposal and a lot of publishers liked it, but nobody could come up with the big enough, you know, right. I, I'm a writer, so I'm an idiot. I would have done it for, you know, well, that was then no longer publishers right. out there. But back then when I was young and my heart was an open book, um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was, I was negotiable, but, but we needed enough of them in advance that um, uh, that Rick could spend two years drawing. Sure, yeah, it's a lot. It's a nobody, lot of man hours. Yeah, uh, no, nobody would come up with that, and um, so I just I, I put the project on the back burner. Every once in a while, I revisit it. Should we kickstart it? Should we do this? You know, just um, but you know, life gets busy, and both Rick and I had uh, other projects and other things, and then. As we got closer to the 60th anniversary, about two or three years ago, I said to my agent, uh, do you think we could transform this into a prose biography? More, you know, now that I've written several books, including the Stan Lee biography, so now that I'm, I'm, I'm an official biographer, can think we could make and, and, and so, uh, again, I went through several drafts of a proposal and it was uh, picked up by Chicago Review Press. And that's, that's how the book and, and, we may we may yet do it as a graphic novel, you know. Before okay, I, before I, I go any further, I do want to ask you. You said you were you were ten years old when it happened. Where where were you? What 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 was the instance of of when you heard about it? Because I mean, everyone that was of a certain age of uh, at that moment remembers remembers it. You know. You know, I have a ridiculous story. I, I, I and I don't. You know, it just I think one of the things you learn when you write nonfiction is how unreliable eyewitness. Because mm-hmm. I've been telling myself a story for years about where I was and telling other people. And I just, I guess maybe as I was examining other people's stories, I examined mine and I went, well, that makes absolutely no sense. So I can, I can tell you where I was and kind of what I was doing. But I think the dialogue that, that, that I recalled, you may find this shocking, but I was out buying, uh, used comics. At a, a secondhand magazine store on First <laughs> Avenue in, in upper on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Of course, everybody in the world is suddenly contacting me now. Um, I was buying used. I was out. I was with a friend of mine. I don't remember which one. It was either my friend Michael or I, there were three. Like there were three other kids in my school. It was, I went to a small private school, and uh, there were three other kids, as I recall, besides me, who were really into comics enough. To like, uh, so it was, um, yeah, I, was, I remember, so I was on East 86th Street in Manhattan and, uh, walking west on East 86th Street, having gotten whatever, whatever we picked up. That was when, when used comics were a nickel because they were old. So you right. weren't going to pay, you certainly weren't going to pay cover price. And I remember whoever I was with, we came, we, we bumped into two of our classmates. And my kind of goofy memory of it is that one of them said what I thought was, did you hear Kenny was shot in Dallas? And so my little joke about it was always, 
why would our friend Kenny be in Dallas and who would shoot him? But as I think back, I didn't go to school with anybody named Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) So somehow I have this false memory. So I can, so I mean, that's what happened. I was, you know, somebody I went, else I went to school with that uh, told us, and then I guess I must have gone home and turned on the TV, but what the exact dialogue was that day. So I don't, it's a kind of a dull story. And then I used to think, I, I, I used to at least try to inject humor into it with the, Kenny was shot in Dallas, but then I realized I didn't know anybody named Kenny, so I don't know how I made that up. But anyway, that's so I, I I'm you know many people have better stories, uh, you know. And then and then I mean, you know, the, the so as a kid, I mean, you don't know what to make of it. It's really it it's just sort of it's it's just this thing that shocking. Again, I you know, not not that uh, I remember. It's all that was on television. I mean, that's. So that any weekend, any weekend TV that you might be watching as a kid was gone. Right. right. And, you know, we didn't, it was, there was no, this was maybe the first news event that was ever 24 seven. You know, there was no such thing. Somehow when I, when I was a kid, all the news fit into 15 minutes from 11 to 11, 15, you know, Mm -hmm. so whatever was going on in the world, it fit into 15 minutes. And this was, you know, so look, I think I was shell shocked like everybody, and 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 and. But at a certain point, you know, you know, like twenty four hour news now, the same thing is repeated with maybe a, a subtle difference, and mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, so yeah, I don't have a great story. Uh, I wish I did. I, I should no, probably, I mean, uh, I probably make something up. You know, <laughs> did your parents try to give you any sort of? I don't know. Maybe not context is the right term, but any sort of like wisdom to you about what what was transpiring or were they just as sort of gobsmacked as you and it was all just you were all experiencing it in in real time because i i think about you know that yeah. like oswald getting oswald getting assassinated he gets assassinated on live television i mean that that were yeah. you know that's that would be shocking still today yeah. Yeah. let alone seeing an actual murder take place in front of your eyes in 1963 you know, it was, I, I, I can't, I don't remember any, like I said, I just remember everybody being, I think, you know, having researches that, you know, and this is, and just sort of figuring out the logic of it. I think if I was an adult then, especially once they, you know, once they had, um, implicated Oswald and talked about his background and having been in the Soviet Union and so on, I really would have thought, and don't forget the the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was just the year before. Right. Yeah. So if I was an adult, I would have been worried about World War III starting. You know, I that was not conveyed to me. Mm-hmm. I have to, you know, I, I, I again, I, I don't know if I'm blocking things out. It was you know, it's it's very interesting because my father worked weekends, and I couldn't even tell you if he went to work that week. You know, he worked weekends in the kosher banquet catering business, you know, on Saturday night and, and Sunday afternoon and Sunday night is when people would have their weddings and bar mitzvahs. I, I don't even know if they called off those parties or if he just went to work and people tried, you know, it's this is a this is this is really. It's funny. I was um, I was just on a podcast relating to this, but relating to other stuff and from my childhood. And I, I have an older brother. I really need to ask him because that, you know that that would really be 
those are great questions, and I and I wish I had better answers. <laughs> and, and I I sort of have this memory of being glued to the television that whole weekend. Yeah, and, yeah. You know whether I actually saw you know the live so to speak shooting of Oswald, or whether I saw it on a replay. I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly saw it within. You know, because that's all we were watching the whole weekend. That's all there was to watch, and and I guess even at ten, I must have had some sense that, that this was history. But I also had a sense of, you know, where's uh, the Roy Rogers show? Where's uh, Tom Terrific? You know, where's uh, you know, where's, where's whatever I, I I was watching? Yeah, it's it's true. My uh, my disappointment to, in myself that I don't. But I mean, it it it, it seems very. Again, to bring it back to comics, because that was sort of very much the focus of a lot of my passions and interests in, in when I was ten. You know, I read back. You know, when I was writing the the Stan Lee book, there was no mention in any Marvel comics, and I don't think in DC comics either of the assassination at the time. No. Just sort of when they needed a president in a story, it went from being Kennedy to being Johnson, but there was no. I don't recall any mention of any of the letter columns, the bullpen bulletins. Can you remember at what point in your mind it became a, I don't want to say accepted wisdom, but it became a, a non kooky thing for people to talk about that it might have been a conspiracy? I'm sure in the early days it was very, you know, oh, we, they got him. They got the guy. And oh, now the guy killed the other guy. And that's it. And do you remember at what point, at what age did you start hearing people say, oh, I think it was, you know, it was the CIA. And that became just something that you could talk about. Well, look, look, I'll give you my, you know, my, my, my personal point of view and then sort of my research point of view. Um, my personal. So when did it first become OK to talk about it as a conspiracy? You just sort of I think it was part of the whole 60s thing. I think it was sort of when. When uh, the counterculture emerged and the idea of questioning the official story about anything, whether it was the Vietnam War or or the assassinations, that so I, you know certainly in my consciousness, you know, and and uh, my consideration by the you know within a, within by the time I was a teenager, certainly when I was in high school and college. Mm. However, looking back and seeing. Literally, there were conspiracy theories that, you know, a minute after Kennedy was shot. I mean, mm. it, it started that soon. And then you can, one can only imagine that two days later when Ruby yeah. walks up and shoots out, you know, when this, ran, when the seemingly random guy walks up and shoots somebody who should have been the most heavily guarded person in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the actual world, I think that started almost immediately. And then, you know, look, to, I guess I should tell people, I don't solve the case in the book. You know, I'm not that smart. <laughs> you know, but I try. Bullet to, in everybody. I, I try, huh? It's a bullet in that you don't solve right, the Kennedy assassination in your book. You know, um, but I try to give voice to some various possibilities that, 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 uh, you know, I've said, I, it's funny. I don't want to say conspiracy theories because I have found that that, that there are some people who I think justifiably find that as a way of trivializing or, or kind of uh, marginalizing yeah. you know, theories or to call it a conspiracy theory. But, you know, they're, they're, you know, so in the book, I, I give, I try to give voice to some of them. 
I I have no doubt that it will not be good enough for a lot of people, and and I'm sort of, you know, wondering what kind of Q and A I'll have when I go around promoting the book. Uh, so, so yeah, but uh, so but it, in terms of like my own, well, the Warren Commission from was was just the the people on it. It was it was guaranteed. The fact that Johnson, look, you know, in a way, right, sort of straight line. So, you know, a lot of people who thought, who has the most to benefit? Well, Lyndon Johnson became president. He would benefit. Let's say charitably, Johnson was not in on it, but ended up as president. Well, then, again, going back to this thing that uh, we talked about before, maybe even, you know, even giving him the benefit of the doubt and the best possible intentions, maybe he didn't want to have World War III start. So Mm -hmm. he immediately picks this highly flawed so so right so the fact that johnson picks the people to be on the warren commission the whole thing is suspect in a lot of people's eyes from the beginning and it sort of mushrooms from there you know yeah. when people ask me what do you think really happened uh my answer really is whatever i read last whatever I, whatever <laughs> book, whatever podcast i heard last whatever book i re- so what i what i chose to do um because i went into this very naively because i was not uh, a student of or, or obsessed with these different um, points of view and call them conspiracy theories. I thought, you know, I decided I'm just going to take a look at this really interesting, weird, violent, uh, strange guy, Jack Ruby, and try to tell his life story. You know, you since Ruby is involved, since Ruby is a player in many conspiracy theories, you can't avoid them and I didn't want to avoid them but I sort of figured okay I'm not solving the case so let me talk to his niece and nephew which I did let me talk to the children of the other strip club owners in Dallas which I did let me talk to the rabbi and then when the rabbi offered me his notes that was a whole trip so let me take this point of view and try to like at least you know see what try to get uh, get inside imagine as I like to say Imagine that your weirdest relative, assuming that, you know, that you are not your own weirdest relative, as <laughs> some of us may be. Imagine your weirdest relative shoots Lee Harvey Oswald on television. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so that's sort of what I tried to get at. What's, what is that like? Or, or to be, what's it like when your name is Ruby? If you're, you know, say Jack Ruby's nephew, you live in Dallas, your name is Ruby. You've been breaking, and you're 12 years old, and you've been breaking to all your friends that your uncle owns a strip club because you're 12 years old and your uncle owns a strip club. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, the- and then, then he's on TV killing Lee Harvey Oswald, and then, <laughs> and then you have to go to on Sunday, and you have to go to school on Monday. <laughs> that was amazing. That part of the book was amazing, and you actually you you actually answered my next question, which was how. I mean, you had that leg up with the the diaries, as you just right. mentioned, but like. I just wondered, like, how does one go about researching a book when most of the protagonists are dead and any people that had firsthand knowledge were dead? But I am curious about, you mentioned, you know, his relatives. Are they sick of it at this point? I mean, are they, do, are they kind of dutiful? Like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll answer your questions because I feel like I should. But I mean, at the same time, I could see them being like, you know, I, I'm tired of talking about my crazy, my crazy uncle. You know, I would say, look, Ruby had seven siblings. That and helps. He had one or two that died. He had one that died, but he had seven living siblings, and most of them had children. So 
you know, I, I spoke to two of those, you know, niece, one niece and one nephew. So obviously, you know, by definition, the others were either not a lot, you know, or didn't, didn't have an interest in talking. And one of them, even though he talked to some reporters in the past, didn't want them to use his real name. Hmm. So, so I, I think they're, you know, my guess would be that probably every 10 years, there's people like me who come, you know, call sure, them up. sure. You know, I think also the fact that I came to them through people they knew. You know, I was, you know, I was, there's a guy named Steve North who was a reporter and he was a producer for the Geraldo show and he was had a very interesting career. And, uh, you know, when you research something, maybe you find this even in the stuff you do or just trying to find people to be on the show, you know, you send out emails to, you know, whatever, a hundred people. And you hope that three of them respond positively. (laughs) That's about Uh, right. (laughs) So, you know, just happened. This guy uh, knew a lot, knew a lot of the players and, and was, uh, you know, and and was interested in sharing his knowledge and pointing me in direction. So it, you know, it, it always helps to come to somebody with a recommendation, you know, so that they don't think you're just, going to take their words out of context or, sure, of course. or out to be in some terrible way. So that's, you know, so that, that's, that's what I, what I, uh, tried to do. And, and, and it's funny, Ruby himself, you know, like one of the weird things that Oswald, this, this, to, this to me is something that I don't see pointed at. I'm glad I didn't try to do a life of Oswald because his life is, is, there's way too many, you know, um, unanswered questions. But one of the, I was 10 years old. My family was, middle class, we had a tape recorder. Many middle class families had tape recorders in 1963. You know who didn't have a tape recorder in 1963? (laughs) The Dallas Police Department. I love that. When you (laughs) mention that in the book, it really does make you go, hey, yeah. (laughs) Come on, guys. This is real amateur hour here. I mean, this guy only killed the president. Not only did they not have a working tape recorder, but they were literally in downtown Dallas where a block away they could have gone to a store and bought a tape recorder. So that, that, you know, whatever, make of that what you will. On the yeah. other, so we, so there's no, you know, we have, we have Oswald's statements when in those impromptu news conferences and the most famous one I'm saying I'm a patsy. Jack Ruby spent three years not shutting up. Right. You know, Ruby would talk to, he literally would have impromptu news conferences like in, in recesses in the trial, you know, which, uh, I mean, there's, there's, and, but he's, what he said contradicted itself and, Left itself open to all interpretation by many different theory of many for many different theories. So I, I hope with the book, you know, that I bring some light to this interesting character. Um, I, I figured out when you do anything with the Kennedy assassination, no matter there's some sort of hubris that we, you know, maybe I guess maybe to start off to write a book in the first place, you have to have a certain you know, um, hubris, but it's just like, well, you know, I'm not trying to, but maybe, maybe if I research enough, I'll, I'll find something nobody else. And then, you know, it's, I soon, I quickly realized I was not that smart, you know, right. so I, I wasn't, gonna, you know, uh, I wasn't going to out research people who had literally spent the last 40 or 50 years researching, you know, the assassination. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think is, is just, inherent in human nature is that we want to 
you just said, you know, you don't like to use the phrase conspiracies because that is kind of a loaded term at this point. And it is in our culture, it has become shorthand for kind of kook right. necessarily. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's maybe not the greatest word to use, but I think people want to see greater purpose and meaning and intention in actions because it feels that the world makes more sense that way. And, you know, when I was a kid, I learned, and I, I don't remember what age I learned about the Kennedy session, probably in school. And, you know, it, it does sound a little weird. You're like, well, this guy killed Kennedy, but then this other guy killed the, killed the assassin. Like that doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, if you're of this mindset, you say, well, Jack Ruby must have, he must have been in on something because why would he do that? And right. one of the things, you know, I, I didn't exclusively come from your book from this, but your book gets into the details of it is, in a lot of ways, no, he was just kind of a random guy who had this horrible idea in his head. And he was able to kind of navigate his way through, you know, a bunch of random events to change world history. But it wasn't, you know, he was just like a regular dude. He, you know, he wasn't. He does fit into, into various scenarios. The thing about both those guys, about Ruby and Oswald, is that they were nuts. I mean, they had long histories, lifelong histories of mental illness. Right. Whether they were lone nuts is the question, you know, right? right. They, they were definitely, you know, I mean, one of the sort of, uh, for, for us New Yorkers, you know, one of the weird factoids that I found out was that Oswald lived in the Bronx for two years and was examined by like every social worker in the Bronx and those <laughs> records are public of, uh, you know, so that, um, so, so, but as, as crazy people, their behavior, excuse me, in general was often erratic and, and, and for no apparent reason. So, and it makes them perfect to fit it. Right. I mean, some, if, if you, maybe they were both long nuts, could have been, or maybe there's somebody out there as I, you know, I mean, so does this is almost metaphoric because whoever it is might be dead by this point, but maybe there's somebody reading my book. I hope they pay full price for. It. Maybe there's somebody reading my book or, or or listening to this who's laughing at me and going, "You moron! I did it. The evidence is out there." Whatever, <laughs> to, to to figure it out, you know. You know, it is funny that I spent so much of my life writing fiction, and specifically at Marvel Comics, where a lot of what we did was based on, you know, coming up with some cool conspiracy story or mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know. But everything, but. Because of that, because we, you know, we control the vertical, we control the horizontal. Everything had an answer and a solution, and 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 uh, and we could pull the curtain back and and show people what happened in in real life. Apparently, that does not uh, happen that often. No, uh, right. That's what's so frustrating about. It. So, one of the chapters in your book is titled <laughs> "Murder Most Foul." Uh, you know, uh, it's not the only Dylan reference in the book, but it's, it's, I think it's the first one as I went through it. I, you know, then obviously it jumped out at me. So, uh, I mean, obviously everybody, you know, we've covered this song. All right. We've been talking for 40 minutes without talking about this. We haven't gotten the song yet. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big subject. It's the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. It's a huge subject. Now, again, everyone, you know, people probably remember we have covered the song before. Uh, my, my pal, the late great Tara Zook and I discussed it, but we discussed it right when Bob dropped it out of nowhere on his website and we had no context for it. And he had that 
uh, as we learned later, kind of strange obfuscation about the recording of it saying, well, this was something me and the boys were working on for a little while, a little while ago. No indication that it was uh, the opening salvo of what would be rough and rowdy ways. No, you know, for some, again, I don't understand why Bob felt the need to do that. Why, as opposed to just saying, this is, this is a, a song we worked on and it's coming off of an album that's coming out in a couple of months. I don't know. So at the moment that Tara and I discussed it, we didn't have any of that context that we thought, well, this is just what it's just, first of all, it wouldn't been the, the first new Bob song in eight years, which by itself was a reason to celebrate. But the, the manner in which it was released would seem so mysterious. And we didn't know, is this it? Is this just, is it just this one song he's done and that's it? Now, of course we learned not too long after. No, it whole album's worth. But at that, in that moment when she and I recorded the show, we didn't, we didn't know about it. So I am curious if this reaction is different from when it was then and when it is now, what was your first feeling about the song when you first heard it? And has that changed now? Do you, does it seem different to you a couple of years in? Yeah. Well, look, it, it, that period was so crazy with, I mean, I'm, you know, I live in New York and near a major hospital. So the soundtrack was endless ambulances screaming, you know, past, uh, if not literally past my window, then a block away on the way to the hospital. And there's people dying, you know, getting sick and dying and, 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 you know, masking and being, you know, not going, not getting on the elevator if somebody else is on the elevator and not just all, you know, trying to sort of carve some, you know, some kind of way to maneuver. And, and looking, you know, to music and to the internet and for solace and for information. And Dylan puts this song out about the Kennedy assassination, which obviously, you know, with, so just, it was like, it felt like the perfect thing. It felt like, huh, here's something from Bob Dylan. Here's a 17 minute song from Bob Dylan to keep <laughs> us, to keep us busy. It, it, the tone of it is very mellow. It's very, you know, it's, it's sad, it's melancholy, but it's almost, and, uh, I want to get into this because this is one of the, you know, part of my thinking about almost like a, if not a clergyman, then a therapist. It's almost, despite all the, like, all the violence and, and, uh, craziness in, in the lyrics, it's, it's an, it, the music and the, and his tone. Is very reassuring and calming and, 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 um, and comforting, you know? So there was something about it that really, and yet captured the tone of, 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 um, of, of the world, uh, what it seemed like at the time. And yet here was, you know, he says the Beatles are coming, they're going to hold your hand sarcastically, but really here comes Bob Dylan, he's going to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. was, and he puts it out in the middle of the night. It was just, just uh, this very, <laughs> what, a, what a strange, and right, it sounds like, you know, because everyone was speculating, when did he do it? I guess, I think I was reading today as part of my, you know, doctoral thesis study for this, was that Fiona Apple, who played on the record, said they did it just like a few weeks earlier. So it wasn't, according to her, something from like, cause Dylan made it sound like it could have been from 10 years ago, but apparently. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the, and, the, you know, then on a first listen, 
right? There is that temptation. You go, oh, this is Dylan's version of We Didn't Light the Fire or American Pie. It's like his list of his favorite, you know, singers and songs and, and, uh, and, and, and movie, uh, and movies. And that's how a lot of people took it. You know, I was reading, I'm reading up an article. Some people just said, here, it's Dylan's list of these, uh, of his favorites. And it's like, well, maybe, but, it, and, and, and look, in some way it is probably, you could say it's an outgrowth of, um, of his radio show, Theme Time Radio Hour, but Theme Time Radio Hour is an outgrowth of his lifetime of studying music, you mm-hmm. know? So, um, yeah, I mean, and it's an endless, but I mean, it, what, what we have now, what I, you know, is, uh, you know, three years, three, three and a half years since then with all the ensuing more nuttiness in the world. And then the context of the rest of the album, because there's, there's a lot of themes in Murder Most Foul that echo with themes from other songs in, in the, uh, in Rough and Rowdy Ways, you know. So, so there's having a context, um, expands it. And, and, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's funny. There's some songs on that album that are, despite the macabre lyrics are kind of, you can snap your fingers to and tap your toes, and maybe go out for a run listening to them. Nobody, nobody's going out for a jog listening to a murder most foul. <laughs> no, no uh, yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Well, look, I was gonna say nobody. It's a, you have to be, a. <laughs> it'll be a very select group that might be trying to like seduce somebody by putting murder most foul on the, Oof, <laughs> on oh the table. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, when I was listening to, I, I mean, I would admit, uh, I love Rough and Rowdy Ways. It's one of my favorite. Ra- I would put it in maybe my top five records of his of all time. I love it so much, and I've I continually still listen to it three and a half years in. I th- this is not a song that I pull out by itself and listen to a whole lot, but I did it obviously in preparation for this. Sure. And like you were talking about, it is oddly reassuring, which is baffling first of all and this was something that happened even in the moment of you know bob has talked about in interviews where he is trying to achieve a timelessness in his songs where time slips away and you're not feeling the passage of time and for a song that is 17 minutes long it doesn't feel 17 minutes long every single time i listen to it i'm and again he gets to the end i'm like wow that was that was 17. I just realized that was 17 minutes. It doesn't feel like that. I don't know how he does that, but he did it. The song that comes closest in length is the Highlands. And I, right. know, I didn't realize Highlands was that long. Right. Highlands is, is I think like a minute and a half shorter or something yeah, like maybe that. Even, maybe even less than a minute shorter. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this doesn't, this just, again, maybe it's because it's, it is so sort of formless and that it is going back and forth between time i mean like you know the the first chunk of the the song obviously everybody i'm not going to be quoting a lot of the lyrics from the song because it's so long it's so dense right. but i mean the opening salvos are all about the event the grisly event and then it seems to move past that where he's talking as you mentioned he's talking about the beatles and okay well he's talking about the beatles that's february 64 so now we're pa- but then it goes back into dallas and talks about it again and goes forward again and then back again and maybe it's that's how he achieves that feeling of like okay there's no linear narrative here for me to sort of mark oh we're at the five minute mark we're at the seven minute mark we're at the nine minute it's just kind of this you know dreamlike state that he's achieved with 
his vocal, the sort of toxing that he's doing, the music of it. Um, you mentioned, you know, Fiona Apple's playing on it. By the way, everybody, I mean, I can't, I don't know if they're alt takes of Murder Most Foul. I'd <laughs> love to hear them. I can't imagine, you know, I mean, they got it all in one take or something. That seems unlikely. But this, I, it might be, it might be a Franken take. It might be a. Right, it could be, yeah. And and there's a lot of monster imagery. That's one of the things in the album, which mm-hmm. is something I picked up on. You know, yeah, build my own version yeah. of you and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. One version of you, Wolfman Jack, the Invisible Man. Uh, and, and there's a lot of 19, sort of, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I'll sort of throw out. Maybe we can, unless you had more specific questions. There's just, you know, listening to it, Right, listening to it over three years is things. The first thing you, I think, the first thing anybody hears is just the list of songs. That's the easiest thing. You know, it's about the Kennedy assassination, and then you know it's some. It somehow shifts to this list of songs. Mm-hmm. If it was, we didn't start the fire, even though you know it's not. But there's there's um there's a lot of monster imagery, and 1941 seems to be important to him. I mean, he was born in 1941. Mm-hmm. He mentions Pearl Harbor. The movie The Wolfman came out in 1941, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then lately on his tour, he's been singing that song that um, "Born in Chicago." Is that what it's called? That "Born in Chicago" 1941 is how he started. That, I think that's I think that's that one. Yeah, he did that a couple of times when he was playing. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's the, the lyric or if he just adapted it because he was born. Because he, but obviously he was not born in Chicago. Mm. Um, the monster, you know, there's 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 a. Uh, you know, as Wolfman Jack, everybody else gets mentioned once, you know, except Kennedy, right? But Wolfman Jack is the subject, you know, Wolfman Jack, he's talking in tongues. I don't think he's saying the wolf, and then the, I don't think he's implying Wolfman Jack is the Antichrist, although, you know, <laughs> um, but the age of the Antichrist has just begun. Wolfman Jack was started his career on a pirate radio station. Right, and se- several. I mean, that was all right. So that ties into Key West. Key West by med- mentions a pirate radio station in the very song just before it. Yeah, which homage is a Van Morrison song from about uh, ten years ago. But <laughs> um, um, Wolfman Jack. So I'm reading about. I'm just reading up on Wolfman. You know, okay. So here's the Wolfman. He's a pirate radio guy. What is so the Wolfman comes from this sort of weird mix of pagan and Christian theology, right up Bob Dylan's alley, right? Just mm-hmm. this imagery. Somewhere in there is Phil Oaks' The Crucifixion. You know, that's 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 a song that you know, that some somewhere somewhere Bob is answering Phil, you know, across the decades. <laughs> Some somewhere I feel is still like you think you wrote a you know an insightful arty song about the Kennedy assassination. Get get a load of this, <laughs> <laughs> and then all right, the Wolfman. So you look. I mean, and this is really you know, this is sort of me going Google crazy. Well, the Wolfman was a, one of the most famous dream interpretation cases of Sigmund Freud. Hmm. Who, as you may recall, is one of the foremost enemies of mankind. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, Bob is no, is nobody's fool. He's got a some somewhere in him. I mean, look, uh, right? It's 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 hard to imagine that somebody didn't point out to him, including himself, that 
well, this is interesting that uh, I've kind of put Freud through the ringer here. I mean, literally mm. calling him one of the, you know, you know, painting a picture of Freud in hell, along with Karl Marx being endlessly uh, pummeled, uh, endlessly, uh, you know, flayed with a, with a uh, rawhide. Right, on the skin off their backs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, he's got everything about the wolfman, you know, and and then that brought me, and again, I'm just sort of, I'm playing between my brain and Google, and let's face it, our brains are basically, have become Google after all these years. <laughs> the werewolves of London and, and Warren Zevon. Somehow, somehow, somehow I think Warren Zevon is in on Bob's mind, you know, and, and uh, you know, I think Bob's, I, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't tied it up with a bow, but this stuff, you know, it's all, it, it thematically at least, it seems to keep recurring in, in, in different, in different ways. Um, you know, and the other, you know, it's interesting because I think like all of us, I think Dylan, you know, Dylan's most famous thing he said in right after the assassination, uh, was that he, uh, was at that civil liberties award. Yeah. Yeah. And talked about how he could under, you know, he, he related to Lee Harvey Oswald back before, back before Dylan started thinking that maybe it wasn't Oswald or that wasn't the whole story, but he said he could relate to him and, uh, under, he could understand why he did what he did. And that, that created a whole big controversy and, and, and <laughs> wonder why, you know, um, well, Dylan then did up, end up insulting the people he was supposed to be uh, raising money from, and then they, you know the the organizers insisted he he apologized, and his, he not only did he not apologize, he doubled down in, in the uh, in the in the in the quote unquote apology uh, letter he wrote. So, uh, you know, and, and then of course he said to Anthony Scaduto, I think, uh, don't you think if I had anything really. Uh, important or, or insightful to say about the Kennedy assassination, I would have said it by now. You know, then there's kind of radio silence, so to speak, until murder most foul, except for the um, footage that we saw, I think, in the Rolling Thunder. It was in one of the Scorsese movies. It might have just been in No Direction Home. The scene where they're, it's a 66 tour, I think, because it's in color. The Penny Baker footage. And one of the, uh, and somebody comes up to tell Dylan there's been a, th- someone's threatened to shoot him when he goes on stage. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dylan actually finds it kind of funny, but his band members, including, I think, Mickey Jones, is definitely, you know, scared. Yeah. And Dylan, as I would be, as you would be, you know, and Dylan says to him, don't worry, Mickey, I'll protect you. <laughs> What a thing to say, right? This is, <laughs> I'll protect you. How would how would Bob actually go about doing that? But there's something just just like you know he came and reassured us, you know, at the beginning of COVID that things are going to be all right. I believed, and I think the band members believed that he would protect them somehow. You know that that way that I used to believe that if anybody broke into my apartment when my father was you know, deathly ill and could barely stand, I still believed that if a burglar broke into our apartment, my father would protect, you know, <laughs> you know, would protect us. So, it's, it, uh, yeah, it's a, ask a question, please. I, I, I guess, I guess the point, if I have any point, it's just that, you know, there's circles and circles. Dylan has themes. 
and it's interesting that they that they contradict. You know, it's, they sort of contradict each other. He's got to know that that like that Wolfman is one of the most famous. You know, says Mister Freud doesn't call him Doctor Freud. Mister Freud and Mister Freud, yeah, and his dreams. And of course, the Wolfman is like maybe the most famous Freud dream. Uh, interpretation. So I'm sorry, you had a question too. No, I'm just like you said. I listening to it over again, and then I, you know, I read a couple of um, articles. One of which you sent me, and I'll talk about that in a, in a, in a second. Uh, interpreting the song because look, when I first heard the song, I, I was a little flummoxed. Like you know, kind of why now? Why is he? Why? Right. Why? Why is that on his mind now? Fifty seven, fifty eight, you know, years afterwards. Um, but you know, who knows? He reads lots of books and it may have just been percolating and now it finally came, it comes out when it comes out. But I, when I first heard the song, my interpretation was the second half of the song, which is the list, the play this, the play that. He mentions lots of movies. I did again. I even missed the Mr. Mystery reference. I mean, good Lord. That's, I know a lot of comic book history, but even that one eluded me, but I found it to be weirdly reassuring in that it was I felt like it was someone who was dealing with this nightmarish event and they were then finding solace in the the creativity that was out there whether it was a song or a movie he talks about Marilyn Monroe I mean we again the the amount of people mentioned in the song is just it's endless and you can go on and on but he mentions Dickie Betts and he mentions Stevie Nicks he meant you know it's this that like, Ruby gets mentioned twice <laughs> three times yeah <laughs> um, and, and, and Ruby is uh is is uh there's this several photos of Ruby in the philosophy of modern song but anyway go back right um, but I mean, so that's, that was my initial interpretation of for me, which, which was, this is somebody who is saying there's the world is the world of the, of the narrator has gone crazy. And I am finding solace in all of this stuff out there that I, and the, the narrator in the song is hearing from Wolfman Jack is hearing over that pirate radio. And here's Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan doing that exact thing for us in 2020 the world has seemingly gone crazy we're in the middle of a pandemic a lot of stuff that we all have lived through and here he is having been silent sort of as much silent as he gets I and mean, he still put out covers records and was still touring but you know his pen was silent for many years and here he is with this bravura performance of the longest song he's ever done and saying for my fans maybe find some solace in in that even though it's a weird song to find solace in because it is so dark but then you know so that was sort of where it was was in my head for a while but then you know i read some articles and you sent me one that was called what everybody is missing about bob dylan's jfk song by an author named richard escal and his opinion written at the time was no the song is bob dylan saying there was a massive conspiracy a massive coup to upend the government and it worked and all of Dylan's generation just buried their heads in the sand and were obsessed with the baubles of popular music and movies and books and things to distract your mind while this more important thing, this magic trick, as he puts it, happened right in front of your eyes. And I thought it was an interesting article. I can't say there's anything wrong with that interpretation. There's no real wrong with any interpretation, I guess. It did seem like, wow, that's a hell of an indictment 
on Bob's fellow generation. And it seemed like, why would that, why would that come out now? Um, but it is curious that his references end at a very certain point, you know, the, the Wolfman Jack references, you know, play this, play that they stop in like the late seventies there, right. you know, he doesn't mention things from the eighties. He's not saying play Madonna, play Taylor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's not doing play Taylor Swift play, you know, what watch Avengers end game. You know, you know what I mean? He's not, He's not doing that. And so to me, it's like, well, then, okay, he really is very specifically talking about a period of time. And so I kind of went, well, all right, I kind of see what this Mr. Eskow is talking about is that this, this song could be that. But like we just mentioned earlier, it is listening to it. It is so its tone is so reassuring and so kind of lulls you into a, 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 a kind of a relaxed state that that seems to be at odds with what the statement is, if, if that's exactly what this guy, if this guy is correct, that's what Bob is doing. I mean, Bob is saying, Hey, there was a murder in front of everybody and America was upended in front of your eyes and we all just stuck our heads in the sand and didn't worry about it. But that's at the same time is, would it sound so, you know, again, reassuring? It just seems those two things seem to be in conflict, at least and in my the, mind. And the, and to me, the most conspicuous thing, not that it, not that it's Bob Dylan's job, but, the most conspicuous thing is he doesn't actually choose a particular person or group to ascribe responsibility to. No, no. Right. I mean that, and then include, and then, and and then the only interview he gave promoting the album was to Douglas Brinkley, a presidential historian. And they talk briefly about the song, but there's Brinkley never says to him, the obvious question, who do you think did it and why don't, you know, so it's, and then I'll throw in another, uh, uh, another interesting thing to mull about the, the poster, the, the adapted from a pulp magazine cover image for the tour and the album, right? That skeleton, but instead of a gun, as I think he has in the original, it's got a hypodermic needle. Yep. Which I don't even, really want to know what Bob thinks is in the hypodermic needle or, you know, I'm, you know, I've certainly seen him wearing a mask, you know, in, you know, when he's not on stage, uh, which indicates that, you know, he might actually, you know, believe that the epidemic was real and not some kind of conspiracy, you know, but what's in that needle at, at the very, at the, again, at the most, I wouldn't call it benign, but it's certainly, Looks like somebody about to kill somebody with some kind of poison. You could say that's an, an image of an assassination or either the, about to happen or a murder about to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, but the, so, so the song, right. It's very, it's a work of art. And so there's sort of that defense, you know, but the natural question to ask is, okay, so who, you know, who, who are these, who is in this vaguely referenced cabal? that you talk about in the song and he, and he's an artist he's not a politician he's not a his, you know a literal historian so he doesn't have that responsibility but it does that that is sort of one of the you sort of it sort of feels like he's you know maybe he's leaving it to us maybe maybe the whole idea is you know I don't know who did it but I don't believe the simple story of the uh, Warren Commission report so you know, you people out there whose job this is, you know, go, 
you you go you find out you know i'm i'm uh you know i it's not for me to do maybe maybe that's if there's a message or one of the messages maybe is just that i mean the i mean what he said it's very interesting what he says you know on the website when when the album dropped i have it here somewhere of course in this you know i'm you know in in one of those papers what he what he said for all your support and loyalty across the years what a I mean that, that. I mean, I think that sets the tone for that reassuring thing. Mm-hmm. That he's. Um, this is an unreleased song recorded a while back that you might find interesting. Recorded a while back. <laughs> what, a month say, ago. <laughs> they say, "Save servant, and may God be with you, Bob Dylan." What you know? I mean, again, I'm sure people obviously were started, you know, trying to interpret that. You know, the the moment the song, but that's a. That's a very interesting, you know, just thanking people for their loyalty across the. This is, this is sort of something in in my presentation at the, in Tulsa, you know, imagine. I mean, I can't even. You know, it's fun to imagine being Bob Dylan. I have no idea what the hell it must like be like. But one thing you can say about Dylan is that he's been in this bubble of being Bob Dylan since he was twenty years old. You know, so that. You know, it's very hard to know what what that must be like. You know, mm-hmm. what what you know, it's a, and he no, not just being famous, but being famous in a way where people think you have all the answers to life's problems and your problems in particular and the big issues of the So it just just to sort of to take the time and effort to come out of this you know, I I, I, I refer to it I refer to it in my talk as um as he's the president of Bob Dylan Nation, you know that's sort of, <laughs> yeah. in a way that I mean, you know, you're uh, that must have been, you know a very interesting, right? John Lennon gets murdered, you know, and Dylan's response, ultimately, you know, maybe not immediately, is not only to not stop touring, but to tour more than ever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there that goes back, I think, to I'll protect you, you know, it's it's a you know, so I think, I think part of this song, you know, just part of has to maybe has to do with being, you know, I mean, I, you know, I it it would not shock me, you know, if there had been attempts on his life, how you know he would be seem like a person who would just attract that, you know, even one of those I love you so much, I you know I I need to, to destroy whatever, you know that. Mm. Mark Chapman kind of thing, so it yeah that that he that somehow he was able. Uh, I mean, you know, I I think Bob Dylan enjoys being. I think Bob Dylan seems like a. He seems to be simultaneously happy and yet has maintained that ability to be pissed off. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's that, that, that Mikhail Gilmore interview that, that was an ARP magazine. No, no, I'm, I'm mixing the two up. I'm sorry. But there was an interview with him in Art Magazine about 10 years ago. And if you haven't read it... I'm, oh, you know, yeah, that's a great, it's a great piece. Yeah. The, the online one is much better. They they kind of edited it for the print one, the online version. But I remember reading that and going, by any measure, this guy is like one of the most successful people in history, yet he's still so pissed off. You know? <laughs> and, and, and which is why we love him, right? He still manages... Well, I don't know, we love him for a lot of reasons. You know, I think he does what all great art does is that it 
it it reveals to us something about what it is to be human and what it is to be alive. But that that preamble, whatever that that thing online about um, uh, about uh, about what the song is, I just thought was very that that was part of the compassionate presentation of it. Even even though the lyrics and the content and the subtext are terrifying, you know, yeah. I mean, even Wolfman Jack. Who everybody kind of remembers, if they remember him as this kind of lovable figure, uh, it was almost <laughs> a self parody. The fr- Wolfman Jack is talking in tongues. How is Wolfman Jack going to, if Wolfman Jack is too busy having a rapturous religious experience, how is he going to play your requests? <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's fun. You know, it was funny. I, I said earlier that, like, you know, the, the references, end at a certain time period actually they really if you really want to kind of they they end the last reference probably is just before john lennon is killed actually i don't think i'm not saying there's a connection there just sort of lines up and that he's talking about things from the late 70s and of course john lennon is is killed in 1980 but the one exception to that rule is in the final line of the song where he says play the bloodstained banner play murder most foul (laughs) he's talking about the song he's talking about his own you know the song has now uh mc eschered itself uh into where he the the song is talking about itself where he's saying okay you know play play this song play the thing you're listening to going off what you were talking about is the what makes me i think about that is you were saying that like He's an enormously successful man, obviously, right? One of the most successful creative artists in the last hundred years by any measure. Right. And yet he is restless. You know, he's perfect. You know, he not busy born is busy dying. He's, he's a restless figure. He's writing books. He's making ironworks. He's writing songs. He's, he's, he's rehearsing city specific songs to play, (laughs) you know, uh, referencing. He's referencing the Gaza situation, I think, when he plays "Dance Me to the End of Love." You know the you know the story of that the, song? the Leonard Cohen song, right? Yeah. That's that's apparently taken uh, from accounts of Jews going to the death to be murdered in death camps. Dance, you know, that's to the to the sound of other Jewish inmates playing violins to sort of keep them calm as they go to their deaths. I mean, that again, Dylan has to know yes. what he was doing. Of all the Leonard Cohen songs in the world to pick, to sing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea what that song was about. And actually, a friend of the show, Amy Maud Helfer, pointed it out to me in an email. She said that's what that's what the song's about. But, but even that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Like, you know, with there is so much out there now for, for people to be unhappy about, whether you're talking about the Middle East and the poly, our scary level of politics that's going on right now and everything else. And we all know people on social media, maybe in real life. Hopefully you don't know these people in real life, but maybe yeah. you do. The people that are like doom merchants that are just everything is terrible and no one should be happy because everything is terrible. And if you're happy for a moment, it's because you're clueless and you you know and that those people have their own agendas of like well you're just and yes you want to be aware of the world around you and not go through life like a blithering idiot thinking everything is great when it isn't but at the same time there is no value in just being miserable all the time 
just being like, oh, everything is, you know, what do, oh, what's the point of ever trying anything because the sun is going to, we're going to, the global temperatures are going to rise and we're all fucked anyway. Like, there's no, they, well, you know, we're, we're falling into the easiest assumption of all is that the person who, you know, the point of view character in any of these songs, including Murder Most Foul, is Bob Dylan. Is Bob Dylan. Right, right, right. But the thing I was going to, that I just learned today, because you say, you know, play Murder Most Foul. Mm-hmm. Murder Most Foul was, was you know, the Shakespeare quote, sure. obviously, but it's also an early book about uh, a conspiracy, you know, about a JFK conspiracy called Murder Most Foul. Oh. The guy who wrote it apparently also translated it or transformed it into a play. It could also be play, colon, Murder Most Foul. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. Right. You never know. I literally I found that out. I knew about the book, but I didn't know that uh, that it, that the guy had done uh, a, a a dramatic version. I don't know if it was ever staged anywhere, but yeah. But the but there's also an aspect of it where you're right, where Dylan is saying, "Play this song." So yeah, it, it, it can it can create an endless loop. Is every song requested from Wolfman Jack? I thought it was, but then some, I was reading something today where they, I didn't have a chance to actually go back, where it almost seems like it's Dylan almost requesting it of himself but it i think so yeah yeah you know but the and i i don't know when did um wolfman jack died in 95 i think so i guess one you could say that maybe it goes up to 95 i know what you mean there's nobody there's no madonna there's no no right there's nobody explicitly from the 80s or anything like that but it's so yeah i mean i mean for god's sake we could you know bob loves movie he could be talking about the old uh, Miss Marple, <laughs> you know, I get the Christie murder most foul. I mean, but to me, it was like by, by, by saying that it was like Bob is sort of saying maybe with the song, yes, there's, there's nightmarish things that we need to face. And these, this is what my generation faced. And there are obviously things that you younger people are facing, but there, there is value in finding solace in something that is going to help you get through it as a, you know, maybe murder vote. So maybe this song, maybe this will help you do that. You know, maybe the, the forthcoming album will help you do that. Maybe the tour will help you get that. Yes. You to be aware of the world you're living in and all the horrors that are, we're faced with every single day and the horrible behaviors by people, but there's still things to find joy in and this could be one of those things and so and that that to me lines up with the the, the tone of the song we were talking about earlier when i was listening to it, i'm like this song isn't a downer despite its subject it just doesn't it just doesn't make me feel down when i'm listening to it well i mean the other i mean sort of it's funny the other the most reassuring thing bob dylan does is he tours a hundred nights a year mm-hmm. and that and people talk about that I mean, it's just very, oh, why doesn't he stop? Or this was a good show and that was a bad show. I mean, those, I mean, those are all, I mean, I'll actually selling out all these arenas. Whereas I, I remember even like 15 years ago, I would go to like a Dylan concert and not, not every venue was sold. So, I mean, he's, but he's showing up. He's there every night. He's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, look, I guess, um, there are many vital and active, uh, octogenarians. Um, and look, and I think everybody's thinking, well, look, the tour was called, you know, Rough and Rowdy Ways Tour 2021 to 2024. So everybody's guessing, oh, maybe 
if not retire, maybe he'll just like be in residence. But the but that he is, you know, just showing up and is there. I mean, that's that's an incredible. You know, there's no, is there any music act from that? Well, you know, I mean, you know, Paul McCartney. You know, they have the roll. You know, it's the McCartney and the Rolling Stones and Ringo, and but they don't tour that much. They're still releasing songs, though. I mean, we've got a new Rolling Stones album, a new Beatles single, and Bob Dylan's on tour. (laughs) Bob Bob Dylan doesn't need like um, you know, you know, artificial AI uh, help to to put out new songs. Mm, I mean, it's a, it's you know, you know, I've been COVID careful, so I'm going to see him uh, next week in Brooklyn. But I have not, I haven't been on any, I haven't seen any of the shows on the tour. Oh wow! Uh, Okay. Um, but that's, you know, it's a weird, I don't know if you call it a public service, but there is some, some aspect of, of him showing up. And again, and I love it when, you know, you read online, like people go, oh, that wasn't, there was a substandard or, you know, or he wasn't feeling, it's like, he's there. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, <laughs> he's there and he's, you know, a good night, bad night. He sh- he shows up, and then there was, I don't know what the hell happened. There wasn't there one in Providence where um, they, there was mechanical difficulty in one of the recent shows. Oh, I don't know. I don't know whether that show that he canceled. It oh, Boston. I think it was Boston. They had to cancel because of the. Shows. But yeah. he's going back in like next week to redo yep. it. You know, it's it's. I look. I, it's and what I, you know, he's. I don't. know. I'm just kind of rambling now. It's just. It's very interesting. You know, we saw a very human side of him with the whole uh, that you know minor tempest with that tempest in a uh, <laughs> in, with the uh, the mechanical signing stuff. You know, that was a, mm-hmm. that was a weird <laughs> thing. You know, but that gave him an an opportunity to tell the world he has vertigo. What a weird, what yeah, a, what an interesting way to sort of. Um, I have a theory about that about about that fiasco, which is, you know, if not Dylan himself. Somebody delegated it to like a grandchild or a niece or nephew and went, let them, let them take care of the signing. What, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? This is the easiest thing in the world, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I mean, we, Bob Dylan is also a business and I'm sure that sometimes <laughs> I think, I think, you know, maybe compared to some others, he's been fairly tasteful. At yeah. managing the Bob Dylan, you know, t- you know, uh, t- trademark side of his life, and sometimes that it probably gets a little, a little away from him. Uh, and I think that might have been one of those instances where the, the, the bit with the, uh, the auto penny. But yeah, I, I do think that his touring is on some level sort of a public service because look how happy it makes people. Look how excited they get. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not following a lot of other artists but good lord i come I, you know i get up in the morning and i check dylan twitter and if he's played the night before everyone's all excited oh he played stella blue again oh he played you know and, and, and that's just that's just a remarkable thing and it is somewhat like a public service I that mean, he is performing for people but it's a public service in the way that only bob dylan will do public service mm-hmm. does it you know you could say a public service would be play your greatest hits but he does you know never gonna do that no well, you speak- know what he's going to do, but it's certainly not what you know. He's rewarding those of us who buy the albums and you know and know the songs, and then you know he'll throw in a couple of, but 
no like a rolling stone no just like a woman no everybody must get stuff just you know it's and 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 yet still i don't know you know i don't know i think every concert i go to there's always somebody who got schlepped along by their you know significant other right. Or, um, right. and they're and they could not be more bored you know they like <laughs> it's like i can't recognize this yes have you not been followed yeah apparently you've not been following no no, Dylan's concerts for the past 30 years because yeah. then no <laughs> you know you're not going to get a jukebox you know no. nothing wrong with that but you're not going to get that from him you know? no um speaking of live this song of course remains the single song from Rough and Rowdy Ways that has never been performed live right. uh you can never say never when it comes to Bob I think the odds that this will ever be performed live are pretty remote simply because I just think that it, it seems like such a kind of, not that his other songs aren't serious, but this just seems like such a serious song that to kind of do it right in a live setting would require you to, it to be 17 minutes long. And I just don't see him ever doing that. But you know, what, of course, as we all know with Bob, you never have, know. Now his tour is going through the, through like early December. Does, I know he's doing the 20th and the 21st in New Jersey. Does he have anything? Schedule for the twenty second. Uh, you know what? I don't know, but yeah, that'll be the sixtieth anniversary. I, uh, you, you never know. You ne- again. You could oh, never no. say never when it comes to when it comes to that. Uh, so maybe, maybe some night he'll he'll pull it out and do his own again. That would be a, a remarkable. He did Highlands, I think, once live. I mean, well, he. I, think, he I, a few, I think it's a few versions of it on. on, on yeah. That. What What else <laughs> has he not done? Has he? Has he done? He's done Idiot Wind. Oh yeah, no, he's done. He's done virtually ever. He did Brownsville Girl once, sort of. You know, like he's never. Yeah, I was, I was um, there. But that all he did was the was the chorus. Yeah, all he did was the chorus. Right, exactly. So they, it just this song just seems so much more again serious. I can't picture him sitting there and making the audience be quiet for seventeen minutes as he goes through with the you know re- reading. And although, although of course this song by its very nature. Uh, it invites lots of changing. I mean, he could constantly be swapping in different terms and different people and different, if he, whatever, to whatever suits his mood because it, it just fits. Yeah. No, it, it, right. Well, you, there's, you know, you, it's funny. You can't predict him. And yet he, for the past 10 years or more, he's been doing the same set, you know, on a, on a given section, on a given, on a given period of, of his tour, he's doing it. You know, the right eighteen or nineteen songs, but he has slots for two, one or two that are going to be uh, that you don't know what it's, and even that is, and that sort of oh, that's the slot for the song you don't know what it's. Yep. So it's in, which, as opposed to say, twenty years ago, if you, you know, I remember there was like he was at the Beacon Theater in New York for like five nights, and he played five completely. I think in the five nights it was seventy five songs. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. amazing. Uh, I, I'm gonna, you know, I know I will be just, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm doing a lot to promote the book, but my, so far my main live appearance is gonna be in Dallas on November 20th. Wow. It's a wow. joint, it's something co-sponsored by the Sixth Floor Museum, which is the book depository, and the Dallas Jewish Historical Society, which could have knocked me over with a feather. I would have thought that Jewish organizations would not wanna, you know, maybe, maybe Jack Ruby, not their proudest, uh, right. Uh, sure, you know, Jewish person, but 
Um, I guess maybe after 60 years, they can look at him as like this uh, strange historical figure. So uh, yeah. you're in Dallas <laughs> on November 20th. Uh, come check it out, and I'll be I'll be to Barnes and Noble there. I'm not going to give you my whole tour, but I just it was just sort of I just find it weird to be saying to people things like now, yeah, I'm going to Dallas in November. It's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That didn't always work out so well for for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, the the book again is called Jack Ruby: The Many Faces of Oswald's Assassin. As I said, it's it's a really engrossing read. That is the good, not entertaining, engrossing. Because uh, I learned it's Rob you know, Kirby. <laughs> for, for for you know for for as, as much as I knew about the subject, I, I learned a lot about just the back angle of it, and it's just it's um, you know exhaustively detailed, but is is captivating the whole time. So uh, thank you so much for for coming by, uh, Danny. Thanks, I really appreciate. Uh, it. I hope uh, some of what I said made some sense tonight. So that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So okay. Before we sign off there, I have to ask you our, our standard exit oh, okay. question. Now, I'm I'm going to change it up for you a little bit because <laughs> you have a lot of credits to your, you know, you've written a lot of books, you've written a lot of comic books. So I, I'll change it up a little and say to you, if you were going to meet Bob and the context was you were going to give him s- some piece of your work, could be anything. <laughs> what what do you think that would be? What would you want? I'm guessing it might be the Jack Ruby book because I feel like that would be right up his alley. But I don't want to I don't want to answer for you. So what what would you That's give a him? Really of your interesting work? question. Thank you. <laughs> um, if I were to give him, you know, I would I probably would give him the Stanley biography because I think Bob, being you know the age and generation he is. I think Bob has some interest in the pop culture, you know, that was going on simultaneous with when he was uh, starting out. Yeah, um, him and Marvel rose at the same, almost I, exact same time. But I, but I, I have a feeling based on some things I've seen him say that his knowledge, you know, I think Bob liked comics well enough, but I don't think he was a major comics guy, even though he did read Mister Mystery uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it. I think the book maybe, if I may have the audacity to say so, might fill in, uh, uh, you know, some gaps that uh, he might find of interest of of that period. Okay, fair enough. Like I said, that'd be great. <laughs> so, well, again, uh, Danny, thanks so much for coming by. Oh, again. No, thank uh, you. This was great fun, as 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 was the other time. So let's. Um, We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening. Um, of course, you can find Pod Dylan over on Twitter and Blue Sky under Pod Dylan. And if you want to support the show and hear the full extended episodes that come out every week, plus the bonus shows, please subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. So that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Thank Bye. you, Rob, and stay, uh, stay safe and stay observant. That's good <laughs> advice for everybody. Bye. This is 50,000 Watt Clear Channel XCRB, Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles, 1090 on your dial. Hey, baby, welcome on in here to the Wolfman Jack Show for a 